Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do terrific work. Give them a call. Visit the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also, buy Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, the website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current global events. We'll visit with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll compare Chester A. Arthur, former past president, with Joe Biden in terms of talking infrastructure. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief, will be joining us as well. It is September the 27th, and on this day in 1779, the Continental Congress appointed John Adams to travel to France as minister uh, to, in charge of negotiating treaties of peace and commerce with Great Britain during the Revolutionary War. Adams had traveled to Paris in 1778 to negotiate an alliance with France, but had been unceremoniously dismissed when Congress chose Benjamin Franklin as sole commissioner. Soon after returning to Massachusetts in mid-1779, Adams was elected as delegate to the state convention to draw up the new Constitution. He was involved in these duties when he learned of his new diplomatic commission. Accompanied by his young son, John Quincy and Charles, Adams sailed for Europe that November aboard a French ship, Sensible, which sprang a leak early in the voyage and missed its original destination, instead landing at El Ferrol in northern Spain. After an arduous journey by mule train across the Pyrenees and into France, Adams and his group reached Paris in early February 1780. While in Paris, Adams drove to Congress, wrote to Congress almost every day, sometimes several letters a day, sharing news about British politics, British and French naval activities, and his general perspective on European affairs. Conditions were unfavorable for peace at the time, as the war was going badly for the Continental Army and the blunt and sometimes confrontational Adams clashed with foreign government, especially the foreign, powerful foreign minister Charles Gravier, Comte de Virginis. In mid-June, Adams began a correspondence with him in which he pushed for French naval assistance, antagonizing both Virginis and Franklin, who brought the matter to the attention of Congress. By that time, Adams had departed France for Holland, where he attempted to negotiate a loan from the Dutch, before the end of the year, he was named American minister to the Netherlands, replacing Henry Lawrence, who was captured at sea by the British. In June 1781, capitulating to pressure from Virginis and other French diplomats, Congress attacked, acted to revoke Adams' sole power as peacemaker with Britain, appointing Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, John Jay, and Lawrence to negotiate alongside him. The tide of the war was turning in America's favor, and Adams returned to Paris in October 1782 to take up his part in the peace negotiations. As Jefferson didn't travel to Europe and Lawrence was in failing health after his release from the Tower of London, it was left to Adams, John Jay, and Franklin to represent American interests. Adams and Jay both distrusted the French, in contrast with Franklin, who their differences of opinion and diplomatic styles allowed the team to negotiate favorable terms in the Peace of Paris of 1783. The following year, Jefferson arrived to take Adams' place as American minister to France, forming a lifelong bond with Adams and his family before the latter left to take his new post in American ambassador to London and continue his distinguished record of foreign service on behalf of the new nation. Can you imagine crossing the Pyrenees, the arduous and difficult process of being able to negotiate eyeball to eyeball with uh, the English and the French? Well, if in, in international golf, the Americans won back the Ryder Cup and perhaps a whole lot more Sunday, sending a strong message to Europe with a powerful performance from the youngest team in Ryder Cup history. Scotty Scheffler, one of six Ryder Cup newcomers for the Americans, took down the number one player in the world with a 4-3 victory over John Rahm as the scorebirds around Whistling Straits quickly filled with America Red. The final blow came from Colin Morikawa. At 24, the youngest player on the team and already a two-time major champion, he holed a three-foot birdie putt on the 17th hole that assured Americans at least the 14 and a half points they needed to win the tournament. 
Dustin Johnson at 37 was pretty good too. He came in the first the first American since Larry Nelson in 17, 1979, that is, to go 5-0, and completing his perfect week by beating Paul Casey, who played really well too. The Americans were young, yes, and very good with four of the five top in the world ranking. They finally played like it. Those four players, Johnson, Morikawa, Cantley, and Xander Shoffley, uh, combined for a 14-1-2 record. The final score was the America uh, was the United States' 19 points, an all-time record since 1979. Congratulations to the Americans. And boy, it was a heartfelt victory. Lots of tears and lots of joy uh, there at Whistling Straits. Fun to watch. Well, SCH Healthcare System is resuming elective surgeries today. In addition, the hospital system in Cuyahoga County allowing limited patient visitation. Both moves are due to declining COVID-19 hospitalizations, which stood at 107 patients on Friday, the lowest number since the summer before August surge of Delta variant cases. Lee uh, Health, the public-operated hospital system in Lee County, has not announced any changes to the current hold on elective surgeries that require an overnight stay or to its patient visitation policy. Due to a continuing decline in COVID hospitalizations, NCH is happy to announce that we'll be resuming elective surgeries. According to a new re- news release, those who may have been recently impacted by the closure of elective surgeries may contact their doctor's office to inquire about getting on the schedule. Bayer County schools have also reported more COVID-19 cases in the first six weeks of school than all of last year. Since the first day of school on August the 10th, 2,065 cases have been tallied in the district's case dashboard as of Wednesday. Bayer Schools Superintendent Kamala Patton said the district continues to work with local health department and medical experts. We monitor very closely and carefully these conditions as each in each separate school, she said. More than 47,700 students are enrolled in the schools, so a couple thousand students. Now the question is, did AIM go to the hospital? I suspect not. Was it a matter of the sniffles and flu-like symptoms, or were they uh, pretty serious? And, frankly, were they all COVID, or were they some other cold or or flu symptoms? Uh, Those questions linger in my mind. In any event, uh, you can take solace in the fact that, uh, for example, we're seeing the number of cases go down, at least among adults, in Collier County. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis and ultimately Gainesville City employees scored a victory this week after a judge granted a temporary injunction against the city's vaccine mandate. Until Wednesday, Gainesville City employees risked termination if they refused to get vaccinated for the Chinese coronavirus. A rule the city commissioners voted in for uh, August 4-3. People are going to hospitals. The vast majority of them haven't been vaccinated, Commissioner Adrian Hayes-Santos said at the time. I wonder if that's true, or just alleviating <laughs> from a commissioner. I believe we move uh, towards mandating vaccines for our employees so we can ensure all of our people are healthy and they have a safe workplace, and also for the public, the commissioner added. That, of course, ignoring the fact that people that have been vaccinated are getting COVID too. Breakthrough cases, they call it. A lawsuit on behalf of roughly 200 city employees was subsequently filed by the city on August the 26th. On September the 13th, during Ron DeSantis's Newberry visit press conference said around the illegality of vaccine mandates, the governor revealed Attorney General Ashley Moody filed an amicus brief with the court supporting the city's employees challenging the intrusive mandate. And so uh, they've won that case, and uh, I think DeSantis and the uh, Legislator, legislatures in Florida have been uh, vindicated. I think this is all good news. On a different topic, Intel Corporation on Friday broke ground on two new factories in Arizona as part of its turnaround plan to become a major manufacturer of chips for outside customers. The $200 billion plants, dubbed Fab 52 and Fab 62, will bring the total number of Intel factories at its campus in Chandler, Arizona, to six. They will house Intel's most advanced chip-making technology and play a central role in Santa Clara, California-based company's effort to regain its lead in making the smallest, fastest chips by 2025 and having fallen behind rival Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing. The new Arizona plants will also be the first Intel 
uh, that the first that Intel has built from the ground up with space reserved for outside customers. Intel has long made its own chips, but its turnaround plan calls for taking on work from outsiders such as Qualcomm and Amazon.com. It's very interesting now. This is, again, the free markets responding to a need, and clearly there's a need because there's, we now have a shortage of chips and a reliance on Taiwan and other countries in order to get our technology. Well, I think right now we're seeing Intel step up and uh, fill that need. President Joe Biden said Friday that talks on his $3.5 trillion spending proposal will at a standstill as congressional Democrats struggle to bridge differences between the party's factions. Bard made the remarks on uh, at the White House, and uh, we're getting down to the hard spot here, Biden said. We're at a stalemate at the moment. Well, Nancy Pelosi sees it otherwise. She says we're going to take a vote not on Monday but on Thursday, and she has indicated she believes she's got the votes to pull this off. We can only hope she's wrong. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine, be in the know, and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of historycentral.com. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabee's.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. The website is thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is a uh, scholar. He's a, also a, a author. He's written several books on past presidents, and of course uh, is the founder and president and publisher of a multimedia website, terrific website, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So we've been talking about, uh, as we have for the last fifteen years, what's going on around the world globally, and uh, let's start off uh, with the elections yesterday in Germany. 
Yes, the elections in Germany were somewhat inconclusive. What we did have was that the Social Democrats uh, increased their power and now have more power, uh, more seats than um, Angela Merkel's power, uh, party. And she didn't run, of course, and that's probably the reason they went down. Um, it was an election, interestingly enough, on one hand, you had the, um, re the replacement for Angela Merkel in the CDU, who's considered very, very boring, and he ran on the fact that he's boring. <laughs> uh, you have the head of the, the Socialist Democratic Party, which is to the left of the CDU, but was, was part of the last coalition, and the person who's the heading, the heading the government was the finance minister in the last German government. So not exactly a radical leftist, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, you had the Green Party, which did considerably better than it did before, but was expected to do even much, much better, but um, it's, it ran into difficulties when it has a very young leader. She's 40, and it turned out she was padding her resume and was involved in some plagiarism and some other issues. And so that really hurt them because, you know, she, she didn't have a lot of experience, and yet she was charismatic and everything else. And so they did better than last time, but they didn't do as well as they expected. Um, Germany has a coalition government situation, so they have to negotiate between the parties. The most likely outcome is probably the Social Democrats with the Greens and one of the small parties, but not totally clear that's the way it'll work out in the end. So it's a lot of unknowns here. Um, but clearly Germany has moved slightly close to the left, but it's really it's not the same left-right that we think about in some, mm -hmm. in some ways. Um, but then, and of course Merkel was an overwhelming, overwhelming personality, and without her there's no one who who meets her in terms of the personality and leadership, and so we'll have to see where things go from there. Yeah, so, I mean... It's rather remarkable. She she retired after 16 years, still being, being the most popular politician in, in Germany. Yeah. yeah we what's usually it, have that happen. After what, 16 years, people retire usually of the politician. What do you think is going to happen in terms of the European Union? Is she who is de, de facto the leader, it, it certainly didn't hold the position as the leader, but uh, uh, what influence do you think this is going to have on the European Union? Look, without Angela Merkel, it'll be a little, a little more rudderless. But remember, they existed before Angela Merkel came around. I think they'll continue to exist, the European Union. The reasons the European Union were created are just as strong today as ever. Um, you know, I don't think we've already seen the fact that additional integration is not likely to happen between the economies, but it also does not look like there'll be any more Brexits. The British Brexit is having all sorts of difficulties at the moment, economic and shortages and all sorts of problems. We'll see, you know, how that works itself out over a period of time. Um, but no one is rushing to exit the European Union either at the moment, so um, yeah. we'll have to see. Most Most young people in most of Western Europe, and that really included England as well, identify them first as, first identify themselves first as Europeans and not as Belgians or Italians or French or Germans. They're first Europeans and then second as Germans. Yeah, that's a change. The generation. The older generation obviously is not the same. Yeah, that's so interesting. Now, you, you mentioned shortages in, in uh, Great Britain. Uh, we're experiencing shortages around the world, actually, because of what's happened with the pandemic. Is it more severe? But in their, their shortages are on food and things of that nature. I'm not talking about chip shortages and those type of shortages. Literally, there have been food shortages in Britain. Hey, Mark, are you there? Mark? You? Yes, are you there? I hear you fine. Okay, good. <laughs> you kind of clipped out there for a moment. Okay, so uh, uh, th th we'll proceed then with uh, with uh, new elections. They haven't now selected their new prime minister, have they? No, it'll take time. There'll be coalition negotiations. The uh, new prime minister has to receive 51% of the parliament, and no one, of course, I think the largest block right now, the Social Democrats have like 29%, so a lot of negotiations before you get to, to 50%. And is that going to be an issue or a crisis at all? No, I don't think it'll be a crisis. Uh, but they'll muddle on until, until they do. I mean, it's not the first time that's happened. I mean, luckily, relatively speaking, other than COVID, the world is relatively calm at the moment. Yeah. No immediate crises. So, you know, it's, it's better that way during a period like this. You don't want a crisis. That's right. So let's move then to uh, what's happening in, in, uh, with the Swiss. So the Swiss had a, had a referendum yesterday, and the referendum was interesting. And number one, they approved gay marriage and approved the adoption of gay married people of, of uh, children uh, into their marriage. 
At the same time, they voted down a referendum that would have increased um, capital gains taxes, basically, and, and, cap and taxes on capital. So the, British, so the Swiss have made themselves clear that they're socially liberal and fiscally the same old conservatives that they've always been. Um, I guess you, off the air we discussed the fact that means libertarian. I'm not sure the Swiss would agree that they're libertarians, but that's the effectiveness of, the, of these decisions. Yeah, uh, They're the last um, country in Europe, I think, to approve gay marriage in, in Western Europe. Um, the Poles and the other Eastern European countries are more problematic, obviously, but all of Western Europe, it's legal in every other country in Western Europe. Such an interesting country. I, I believe they actually operate with a... Uh with the head of the uh, administration or the head of the, uh, 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 the with a committee as opposed to just one leader. Well, they're basically made up of three different ethnic groups. They're Swiss Germans, Swiss Italians, and Swiss French. And they speak th their three languages, the official languages of Switzerland. Uh. So that makes things interesting and more complicated, and it's very much geographically based. In other words, if you're in the south, south Switzerland near the Italian border, that's Swiss Italians, and vice versa by the French or German border. So interesting. So uh, let's move to Iran uh, and what's going on right in in Iran. Uh, certainly, there's uh, so two things are happening. Number one, um, the Iranians were supposed to allow UN inspectors into one of their sites yesterday. I think it was. As part of there was an interim agreement that was made because they were violating the, the agreement for inspections. When the inspectors actually showed up, they refused to allow them onto the premises. So they've reneged on the agreement they just made last week. Um, in the meantime, they are not rushing to negotiate uh, with the United States and the other powers for a resumption of the JCOPA agreement. And so what, this has turned out to be the greatest disaster um, in terms of Diplomatic and political military disaster was the decision to exit the JCOPA agreement that was made by the last administration because there was no plan B. And at this point, the Iranians are said to be a month away from enough fissionable material to make a bomb, but it's not clear how long it will take them to actually make the bomb once they have the fissionable material. Uh -huh. um, there was an explosion at one or explosion of fire at one of the research facilities of the Republican Guard yesterday. And a known number of people were killed and wounded. Huh. So I'm sure various people are engaged in various attempts to slow them down, but it's a difficult situation. Um, you know, they, they had, at least by all intents and purposes, agreed to by all the intelligence communities of both the United States and Israel and other countries, had had stopped their, their enrichment of uranium and had sent the uranium they had enriched out of the country. And then, of course, once the United States unilaterally withdrew from the JCOPA, they've gone forward again. Mm. And um, that will go that will go down as one of the great mistakes, in my opinion. Well, they they don't honor, uh, honor an agreement they made a week ago. Why would they honor the JCOPA? Well, they had been because because it was highly monitored. It was highly highly monitored by all by all you know both the both the CIA, the Israeli Mossad, and every other intelligence agency in the world all came to the conclusion that they were. Um, they were honoring the agreement. Yeah, it's not a small thing. It's not something you can hide easily. In other words, nuclear enrichment at Sutter is something you can't really do in your ba in your basement. Yeah, uh, just a couple so, of years ago, we had, uh, I believe, it was probably the Israelis that uh, uh, created a worm that got into their systems that just absolutely created havoc with their development program, set it back considerably. I would imagine something like that will happen again. Right, I'm sure it is happening. You know, in, in any given way, but. Slowly but surely, they're making progress. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. In other words, there's no real way, short of invading the country, to really stop it. And the Iranian people are not going to overthrow. You know, we discussed this over the last two years. However bad the economic situation was, the Iranian people were not going to be successfully overthrow the government. Yeah, and that hasn't happened. No, and there's no sign of it happening anytime soon. So let's move to we have to accept the fact that it is what it is at the moment. And it's likely to be that Iran will be a nuclear state sometime in the not-too-future, or what they call uh, about-to-be-nuclear state. They may not actually go all the way. They may want to stop 
just before creating a bomb for various yeah. uh, political reasons. Well, North Korea has now developed a ballistic missile, apparently. They have now the capability to send uh, long-range ballistic missiles. So uh, they're, they're also a, a real threat and concern worldwide. Well, absolutely. I mean, that was the other great, you know. Uh, let me put it this way. We have a long list of American presidents, starting from first President Bush, I'm not sure we can go back to Clinton. On, well, yes, we can go to first President Bush. We can't go to Reagan. Clinton, um, second Bush, Obama, and Trump all failed at the policies in Korea. Um, so um, we're, we're stuck with a nuclear North Korea, basically, and uh, one that's growing the size of its arsenal at any given time. Uh, the advantage that there is in terms of Korea is... More than anything else, they they have their weapons for, I won't say defensive purposes, but as a deterrent to maintain the regime. The Iranians, on the other hand, and, and they're not, um, their their program and their ide- their ideology, they're not driven by ide- religious ideology of conquering or right. destroying anybody or anything else like that. And they're not going to destroy South Viet- South Korea because they won't eventually occupy it. You don't nuke, you don't nuke something you occupy or have dreams of occupying, at least, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So in some ways, they're less dangerous than the Iranians, who are run by religious fanatics, who have all sorts of ideas of bringing about the equivalent of the Irani- the uh, Muslim Messiah. And so that's where it gets much more dangerous. Yeah, is there any significance in the, f- the fact that the North Korean leaders uh, had somewhat of a makeover, <laughs> apparently, his dress and his... Uh... Who knows? So, you, know, you're, you know, he's the most least, I won't say least understood, but least... We know less about this man than we know about almost anybody, any any other leader in the world, I would say, at this point. Yeah. Um, he's had the least interaction with foreigners. Um, we just don't know a lot about the man, what, is, what drives him, etc. Obviously, I mean, from a purely uh, cosmetic perspective, he looks a lot better, what can I say? <laughs> That's true. Normal. He looks you know, like a normal leader as opposed to what he looked like before. Yeah, well, of course, he's westernized himself a little bit. Maybe that's encouraging. So uh, let's let's move to China, some concerning activities in China. Right, so we have a m- multiple levels of things going on in China. Number one, we have the the potential of a bankruptcy of their largest or one of their largest real estate firms where notes are held by American banks and American institutions and all over the world. And if that company goes uh, bankrupt, it'll have large implications. Will it be another... You know, Lehman Brothers affects the financial markets in those ways. Hopefully not, but we don't really know. It's a sign of the problem that we discussed last week of China overbuilding. Yeah. And there is no more population to fill their they have ghost cities. And these companies took out loans in order to build these buildings. And these buildings, of course, in order to, when, you, when you're a builder, the only way to pay back your loans is either to rent them out and, you know, make the money from rental or sell apartments and pay back your loans. But if there are no people coming, you have a really big problem, and that's the problem that this company has at the moment. On the other hand, we had this development this past week where we agreed to allow the Canadians to release the um, vice chairman or treasurer of Huawei. Um, She was being held at our request in Canada uh, for violations of the Iran sanction. Uh, agreements. Um, but it was a sticking point in the relationships between the United States and China, and of course Canada and China, where the Chinese, of course, had taken Canadian hostages and had been in jail since then, and they, they were released also when this uh, woman was released. Um, look, we have to figure out how we want to deal with China in a way that uh, we find ways of working together while competing and understanding that they're a significant challenge to the world, but on the other hand, we certainly don't want to get into a position where we're, uh, we're at war with China, whether actual war or economic warfare. Yeah, so they they so, did the uh, the uh, illegal flyovers uh, over uh, Taiwan, I mean, indicating a signs of aggression right now, especially after what's happened with Afghanistan. That's a concern. Right. Well, the British, on the other hand, I think today are actually uh, sent the frigate to the states, Straits of Taiwan to reinforce the British commitment towards uh, freedom of waterways and the fact that, Ty- that they are an ally of, of Taiwan. So the British are doing their part. Um, and obviously, 
the agreement that was made with Australia that we discussed last week was obviously a, a very positive thing in terms of confronting China on a very quiet and slow basis. Um, so that's also good. Uh, well worth whatever ire the French might have had. Well, and apparently we've, in a week, made up with the French. <laughs> so, right, it's easy. Come on, it's all emotions there. <laughs> so this is a business deal went sour. What can you do? Hey, on a, on a more significant and strategic basis, I, I understand that Z has uh, uh, made a commitment to move the economy from being more capitalistic. I'm talking about in China right now to being more socialist in the vision of the of the uh, Chairman Mao. Any comments on that, or is that is that accurate? I don't know if that's accurate per se. I mean, he's made a couple of comments. He's also he's also committed China towards uh, more vigorously fighting global warming. Um, so we'll have to see. I mean, look, he's certainly done some difficult things to a lot of large Chinese corporations, which I think he saw as starting to become a competitor of the Chinese party. You know, when the company is more powerful than than a country, let's take Facebook for instance, it starts becoming a little bit of a problem when you have a country that believes in unitary rule. Mm -hmm. So clearly he was getting concerned that some of the Chinese companies were becoming too strong, too independent, and he's certainly taken actions against many of them. Um, you know, we've seen, we've seen him uh, passing new rules. Uh, he outlawed cryptocurrency. done many things to try to maintain more government control. Remember, the success of China economically has been loosening economic control and letting the Chinese people right. um, release their native creativity and abilities to compete on the world stage. So he's you know, working against two, two separate goals, and they're not necessarily compatible. Absolutely not. In fact, uh, the old saying in business, when uh, we work together, uh, there's plenty for everybody. If somebody gets greedy, there's not enough for anyone. And I think that he's demonstrating some jealousy and greed <laughs> against some of the countries, companies that are that are in China. It should be interesting to see how this all unfolds. L let's talk about COVID and what's happening around the world. Okay, so in COVID, we're starting to see the receding of this fourth wave in many countries in the world. Um, again, I think it goes, I, I discussed this before, I think we see that um, it, it tears through a population, the percentage of certain, you know, certain groups of people seem to be more susceptible than others, whether it's their lifestyle or just their genes. And so it, each one of these waves tears through a particular subset of the population very quickly. Lots and lots of people get ill, and then slowly the numbers seem to, to go down. It's a case... Um, Throughout Europe, it looks like the case here in Israel. It's the case in the southern half of the United States, um, and so you know we're seeing that. Of course, in you know we're seeing differences, tremendous differences in death rates between vaccinated areas and non-vaccinated areas. Um, here in Israel, the latest figures basically show that um, with only 10% of the adult population not vaccinated. 78% um, of the serious cases are people who have not been vaccinated. Did I read that so, uh, Israel's going to be requiring the uh, booster? Israel's requiring the booster for what's called the Green Pass. Now, the Green Pass is someone who's vaccinated. In order to show that you're vaccinated and go into, basically to go into a indoor venue with lots of people, you have to have a Green Pass. And Israel is requiring is defining, it's, it's not the booster, it's six months or the booster. In other words, if you got two shots and your second shot was three months ago, you don't need a booster. Mm. But Israeli research has shown pretty conclusively that after six months, the effectiveness, at least of the Pfizer vaccine, begins to wane in a serious amount. So they've concluded that only when you have the booster are you fully once again protected against COVID. And so they're basically mandating in order to um, have a green pass which allows you to participate. Everything is open and, and going to sport events or the theater or anything else. You need to, as of October first, you need to have gotten your third vaccination. Are they? Are they? Or uh, or get or or a test within the last forty-eight hours to show you're not you don't have COVID. You can do that also. Is there any promotion of therapeutics in Israel? Um, they're, they're using regimen. I think it's called. Regeneron? They start, um, I think it's Regeneron. Regeneron, sorry. They're using that. There are two uh, phase three trials taking place in Israel of two different drugs that 
seemingly, um, and I say this seemingly, um, cure COVID in the sense that people within three or four days have been able to leave the hospital. Yeah. Um, however, it's only, you know, it's, it's in, in trials. It's in phase three at this point. They expect results of that to be the end of, end of, um, end of December, I guess. I expect to have final results for that and maybe get it approved. I mean, the other, there, there really is nothing but Regimon, excuse me, I don't pronounce that right, um, is the only successful, um, successful, um, Therapeutic that seems to work. Well, there's I, I've, the uh, the uh, monoclonal antibodies are being used here in Florida and, and in Alabama. Those seem to have a, a good effect, as well as uh, ivermectin. Although the uh, uh, death rate is incredibly high in Florida and Alabama, so I'm I, I question that because while the cases now are down, the death rate is very very high. Which is of course remembering that death is always a uh, a trailing indicator. So your cases could be going down considerably, but the death reflects people who got it infected two months ago. Mark Schulman so, again. Look, go ahead. Go ahead, Mark. Vaccinations are scientifically proven to be the best, but the one thing people make the mistake of is the vaccine is, doesn't give you 100% um, 100% ability to fight off the disease. It gives you 95%, 90%, some ways in those areas. And so it's not 100%. It's not a suit of armor that allows you to go anywhere to do anything without any concerns. Right. Again, Mark, so. I just genuinely appreciate your commentary. Unfortunately, as, as usual, we run out of time before we run out of topics to talk about. But I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Again, Have a want, great week, everybody. Thank you so much, Mark. All right, again, HistoryCentral.com is the website, HistoryCentral.com. Coming up, we're going to be visiting uh, with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgrowing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000-square-foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in the part by Choice Social. It's a new refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. Thank you, Larry. Tell us about uh, the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. 
Your listeners can learn a lot more about us by visiting our website, which is fee.org. That's where they'll see regular daily content in terms of commentary on current issues and economics and history and related subjects. Also, uh, uh, many videos, uh, courses in economics that are free, and uh, also news about events that we hold around the country. Our whole purpose is to educate and inspire young people in ideas of free markets, small government, personal responsibility and character, and private property. Certainly resonates, and I, I must say that I've been to uh, national conferences for the Foundation for Economic Education. It's so inspiring to see young people excited about these concepts. And if you have somebody in your life that is young at those ages, high school or college, introduce them to the great organization, the Foundation for Economic Education. So, Larry, you've drawn a comparison. Uh, I wish you could put Chester A. Arthur, former President of the United States, and Joe Biden in a room together to talk about infrastructure spending. <laughs> Why? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Chester Arthur would run rings around Joe Biden. And a veto that uh, Chester Arthur uh, registered on a bill in 1882 says a lot about where he was coming from in terms of the uh, proper role of government and fiscal responsibility. Uh, most Americans today couldn't tell you anything about Chester Arthur. Uh, he's that... Uh, thoroughly forgotten, unfortunately. Right. He came to the office of president when uh, the president of the United States, James Garfield, was assassinated in the middle part of 1881. Uh, Chester Arthur had been the vice president. So suddenly and unexpectedly, he became president, and the expectations of him were rather low. He had a background in bureaucracy and, uh, you know, kind of a... Uh, not not a very uh, uh, promising uh, background, you might say. But as president, he rose to the occasion and turned out to be a pretty good one. And when the Congress sent him a massive infrastructure bill, massive for its day, in August of 1882, he vetoed it. And among his several reasons were the fact that uh, the bill was loaded with shameless pork barrel spending. He noted that there were a few things in it that... Uh, fulfilled what the bill purported to do, provide for the general welfare, uh, you know, in terms of infrastructure that everybody needed. But it was also uh, packed full of special favors for particular communities represented by uh, the legislators that put that stuff in there. Yeah, it's just so interesting, just the amazing amount. Now, 1882, I guess it was, of $19 million <laughs> infrastructure yeah. program. Can you imagine <laughs> that amount of money by comparison to $3.5 trillion? Actually, $5 trillion uh, that they're considering this week, unfortunately. So, yeah, well, that's a sign that back then, uh, many politicians, certainly Chester Arthur, actually did believe that what they were spending was somebody else's hard-earned money, and so they were going to be careful with it uh, to the extent they could. Uh, today, you know, politicians like Joe Biden, they just don't uh, care at all. No, It's like, uh, you know, we don't care how it's going to be paid for, where it's going to come from, how big it is, uh, or how big the national debt already is. We're just going to spend it uh, as if it's uh, manna from heaven. But back then, politicians had more integrity. Yeah, and it's just so disappointing. I mean, I heard one quote that, uh, you know, if capital is precious and if you don't take care of it, it'll flow to someone else. And that's what exactly what we're doing is we're wasting so much waste in our economy that certainly it's flowing to someone else, and you can see it happening in Afghanistan. So unfortunate. Yep. And, you know, a lot of people will say, why do they waste money? Well, waste is uh, sort of in the eye of the beholder. Because to a lot of these politicians, what you and I would regard as waste is a, a favor or a, a special grant, a, you know, a, a freebie for people who promised to vote for them or supported them in the last campaign. So even what you and I think of as waste fulfills a purpose yeah. <laughs> from the standpoint of the politicians who, who stick it in the bill. I think it's so interesting that during his time, he was actually vetoing this bill at a time where there was actually a federal budget surplus. That's right. In fact, uh, year after year in the late 1800s, the fiscal issue uh, was not deficits or, or debt, but rather uh, surpluses. And they became so large 
that uh, they were embarrassing. And uh, good politicians of the day, like Grover Cleveland, who succeeded Arthur as president, uh, earnestly felt that uh, when the government ran a chronic surplus, it was evidence that it was overtaxing and that they should return the difference. Uh, not today. Today they would uh, spend it and then some. Absolutely. And parenthetically, I know that President uh, Abraham Lincoln in, uh, uh, started an uh, income tax, actually, for a short period of time. How did they fund the government back in the day? Well, the income tax that uh, was passed under Lincoln uh, did not last very long, and then there was a brief attempt in the 1890s to uh, restore the income tax, and that was uh, voted down by the Supreme Court. We didn't really get it till 1913 and have had it ever since. Uh, so when we didn't have an income tax, the cost of the federal government was paid for through tariffs, mm. um, and that was a big issue, too, because a lot of people didn't want tariffs any larger than what it took to uh, fund the government. Uh, they didn't want it also for protective purposes that would benefit uh, domestic manufacturers. Tariffs and also excise taxes. Uh, but remember, government back then was uh, a lot closer to what the founders had in mind for it. It wasn't this massive behemoth that uh, has been built up since by vote-buying politicians. So true. The irony is that we've learned so much then, since then, but we certainly don't demonstrate <laughs> that we learned anything at all, which is really unbelievable. No, that's right. And uh, unfortunately, by running these massive deficits, wasting all this money, we're just uh, kicking the can down the road and expecting that future generations will somehow figure out how to pay for it all. Let's just hope we make some good decisions this week in Congress. We can only pray that. Larry Reed, again, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Please visit the website fee.org, F-E-E.org. Larry, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries, Follow the Leader and Shake the Money Tree, that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. Help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities. Visit www.OptimaEd.org. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. 
Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. New season coming up, exciting productions coming up. You can visit the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org, to find out more. We have with us, as I mentioned before the break, Jim McTagg. He's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief, retired, and now he's writing and a couple of great murder mysteries. His first is Father Leader, and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Bob, and, and I'm pleased that we can be friends because you're a Trump supporter, and I'm one of those uh, never-Trumpers. Um, and I had you had been making me feel terrible about holding my nose and uh, voting for Biden to become president, but uh, these days I'm rather proud of that decision because uh, Biden has shown himself to be so incompetent uh, that he's unlikely to get uh, much, if any, of his agenda passed. And so, and so uh, I've preserved the United States of America from radical change uh, by putting this incompetent person in office. So, so, so uh, please pat me on the back. Well, I tell you, Jim, if anything, I've, uh, certainly he has been a hedge against the growth of making America great. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need a hedge against making America great. I quite frankly would have preferred to see the continuation of what uh, Trump had started because it's going to be a real mess to try and clean up once once Biden's gone. And uh, make some comments. Help us understand. This is a big week right now. I mean, uh, God. It, it is. I, you know, a few weeks ago, I predicted that Nancy Pelosi would be able to ram the Democratic agenda through the house and that is a 1.5 trillion dollar infrastructure plan that has bipartisan support uh, plus this three to five trillion dollar agenda that would turn the united states uh, uh on you know well down push the united states well down the slippery slope to socialism with you know cradle to grave care programs that that would prove uh you know eventually bankrupt uh, the country. Uh, but it turns out uh, that uh, the Democratic Party does not walk in lockstep. It has uh, some sensible moderates who want to put the brakes on uh, these spending plans. And then it has the uh, left-wing crazies who, uh, who, who don't want to pass the infrastructure bill separately from the 3.5 trillion dollar social welfare plan because they think if they pass the infrastructure bill the other bill is dead so they want to link them together and that's a, a formula for defeat especially in the senate because, because again uh within the democratic party there are significant differences and and people are just not going to uh, uh bend to the wind uh you know they're they're showing their backbone and I should have remembered an old lesson, you know, that the old saw is a, that the House is a collection of 435 mayors. And this is essentially true. I mean, you have people representing specific communities with their, their specific interests. And, and, you know, the interest in, in, uh, in a West Coast city is radically different than the interest in a Middle West city or a Florida city. And so we see, we see these um, dynamics uh, coming to fruit in in the house and and uh, so we, we were supposed to have a vote on on the uh, infrastructure on Tuesday mm-hmm. and Nancy Pelosi has had to delay it until Thursday mm-hmm. because um, it could go down in flames. Well, and she's now speaking with some confidence. Apparently, yesterday she said, "Well, we're going to pass. We're going to put this off until to Thursday, and we're going to pass the." Uh, uh, the uh, uh, $1.2 trillion infrastructure plan, and we're going to push ahead on the bigger $3.5 trillion social safety net and climate change bill, apparently. So she's demonstrating some uh, perhaps enthusiasm or, or uh, determination to make both of these happen. You think she can pull it off? No, I think she's whistling in the dark. You know, I uh, subscribe to the Washington Post to see what the left is thinking, and, and they have a lefty right, a columnist named uh, E.J. Dion, who, who writes rather well, but, it, but you know, and he doesn't hide his prejudices. 
which is nice, but he is close to despair. And uh, and he's a he's a political insider. He's you know he can pick up the phone and talk to any of these people in the house, and you know and he's not the only uh, writer on the left that has been uh, throwing in the towel for the past couple of weeks. So that tells me uh, that you know Pelosi is trying to put on a brave face, but uh, the agenda, the Biden agenda. Uh, is really in deep trouble, and and you know not only that. I mean, I mean, we see we see the the problem. People don't want to be associated with him anymore. People in his own party, right? Uh, because of the border crisis, you know, he's going to um, cause pump prices to rise significantly in this country uh, right before the midterm elections, and this is because of the war on uh, on fossil fuels. I mean, it's nice to transition to clean energy. Mm-hmm. You know, who who in the right mind wouldn't like that utopian dream? Uh, but, but it can happen overnight. Like I was joking today that I put on my gas fireplace. You'll love this. It was uh, 52 degrees uh, outside when I woke up today in Pennsylvania, uh, which is like uh, well, that. That would be a deep freeze in Florida. <laughs> so I put on my gas fireplace and I apologized to the woke people that I can't burn marijuana in my fireplace yet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the fact being that it's so impractical to have a war on fossil fuels. Uh, we have to have a gradual transition. And um, if we're not careful, we're going to have the conditions here that they have in Britain today where, where 95% of the gas stations have no petrol. Yeah. So, here, I mean, here's, here's the thing, though, quite frankly. I mean, there is... Uh, Carbon-based fuels are clean. I mean, we can get the particulates out of the air. Where we now have the technology to be able to manage that. Carbon dioxide is plant food. There's, uh, we both learned this in eighth grade chemistry that the fact that that we actually need carbon dioxide for photosynthesis. So this whole thing is just complete farce. And the premise of the entire thing is uh, creating tremendous costs. We should be, you know, it wasn't, what, a year ago? We were uh, energy independent, and now we're worrying about the prices of oil in Saudi Arabia. This is ridiculous. It, it is. And I, you know, I'm preaching to the choir when I say that industrial policy promoted by Biden is a dead end. I mean, it's, it's, uh, we've seen this uh, picture before. We saw Jimmy Carter with his uh, coal gasification plant that was a complete bust. Yeah. Uh, to your point, I mean, science can make uh, gasoline burn considerably cleaner. Uh, so, so what we're doing is we're foreclosing um, breakthroughs uh, in in other parts of the energy spectrum. Yep. By throwing everything into uh, electric. Well, so Jim, uh, out of curiosity, aside from the fact uh, his one virtue you said is the fact that he's incompetent. Is there anything else that he's done in the past eight months that would uh, make you say, well, that was pretty cool? No. <laughs> I, I, I can't think of anything. I mean, I, I mean, he's proved himself. You know, I thought Trump uh, played the blame game all the time. You know, he would – Trump was like a uh, baseball umpire. You know, you never admit, admit you're wrong. Well, Biden's doing the same thing. Look how he's dumped on the border patrol and made oh up, my gosh. you know, made up, jumped to a conclusion that the border control was a uh, whipping agent. So, uh, yeah, you know, he's proved himself to be uh, a liar. I mean, the uh, um, the whole Hunter Biden saga uh, begs us to look at uh, Biden's past at using government possibly to line his own pockets. So, so you know, they accuse of Trump of being uh, president, lying my pockets. I mean, Biden has had a whole career, apparently, of lining his pockets. Oh, he has. So, um, and, and, and lining the pockets of the quote-unquote big guy, <laughs> which would, of course, be Joe himself. Jim McTaggart, yeah, so, uh, uh, Jim, I just want to mention to our listeners, uh, your two books are great reads, Murder Mysteries, Follow the Leader, and Shake the Money Tree. I just genuinely appreciate your commentary here in the uh, show, Jim. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to visit with our state senator, Kathleen Pasadena, soon to be the president of the Senate. We'll also visit with uh, Boo Mortensen. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. Linda, my wife Linda, the author of 
Uh, greetings from Paradise will be joining us as well. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.